You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. 1 Peter 2, verses 13 through 17. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. This is the word of the Lord. In our Old Testament reading and sermon text for today will be 2 Samuel chapter 4. 2 Samuel 4. When Ish-bosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Banna, and the name of the other, Rechab, sons of Rimen, a man of Benjamin from Beeroth. For Beeroth also is counted part of Benjamin. The Beerothites fled to Gideon and have been sojourners there to this day. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was uh, Mephibosheth. Now the sons of Rimen, the Berethite, Rechab and Baana set out, and about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ish-bosheth, and as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Baana, his brother, escaped. When they came into the house as he lay in his bed, in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of Arabah all night, and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, this day on Saul and on his offspring. But David answered Rechab and Baana, his brother, the sons of Rimen, the Berethite. As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversary, when one told me, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more, when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them, and cut off their heads and feet, and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you gave us stories. I pray, Lord, that we would attend to those stories, listen to those stories. Um, And be patient enough to draw out of your stories what you intend to tell us and to teach us. God, thank you um, that you've given us your word. I pray now that we'd listen to your word and see your word as a grace to us. In your name we pray, amen. 
Uh, We come now to a fantastic chapter and a book that's full of these chapters, which are perfectly suited for middle school boys. And we have multiple beheadings, we have feet getting cut off, we have bodies being hung in trees. And, uh, and so, middle school boys, this one's for you. Um, I want to begin by drawing our attention again. This is something we, we kind of come back to every few chapters, just to remind us. Um, if you're like me, and maybe you're not, maybe, but uh, if you're like me, you're drawn more to, you, you uh, perhaps find it uh, an easier payoff when reading the Bible, when you go to places like Ephesians or Romans, where, where there's kind of a propositional argument that moves straightforwardly through, um, forming an argument, drawing a conclusion, and then giving us um, a therefore, or how should we live in light of um, the truth that's just been argued for. Um, I, I love spending time in places like Romans and Ephesians and, um, and, and seeing the, kind of the glories uh, just plainly put in front of us uh, in, in such a way that, that the heart is easily stirred. Um, I love the Gospels. Uh, one of the wonderful things about the Gospels is its stories, like what we have here in the Old Testament, but um, in, in line with those stories, we also have a very clear explanations. So, so uh, the famous Mark and Sandwich, where, where you have um, something happens and then something happens, and in between the two things happening um, is a pretty clear explanation of what those two things that are happening means. Uh, you don't get either of those things very often in First and Second Samuel. One of the things you do get in First and Second Samuel is uh, one of the things that God loves to do, and it, and it forms really the foundation of the soil out of which the whole of Scripture is built. Um, in fact, all of those beautiful, clear, logical arguments that you get in places like Romans and Ephesians. Um, they are simply an explanation of, kind of a, um, a because of the story, um, the story that unfolds in places like Genesis and places like First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. Because of that story and how it unfolds, therefore, here's what we can see or conclusions that we can draw about the nature of God, the nature of Christianity, the nature of our justification, how we're made right with God, and, and namely the glory of Jesus himself in the light of those stories. Um, it is a regular indictment to me that, that when you read the letters of Paul um, and you go back to the book of Acts and try to understand where Paul came from, how, how did he draw all these conclusions? Was it just kind of magical, out of thin air? And you find that as Jesus reveals himself to Paul, um, as Paul begins to see Jesus as the Messiah, as the, um, the exclamation point or the, or the climactic moment in the whole story of Israel, these stories right here, the ones we're looking at, um, that he goes away into the desert, spends a few years um, kind of rethinking his understanding of these stories, and then what you get on the other side of it is Romans. Then what you get on the other side of it is Galatians. Um, and I read First and Second Samuel, and I see wonderful stories about beheadings and giants getting knocked out, um, and all kinds of glorious things there. Um, but it's really, really hard for me to think my way from this text to, to arguments like what you will find in Ephesians. But this is exactly led by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit of God, exactly what Paul himself did. He reread these stories in the light of the coming of Jesus, the, the climactic revelation of God and the gospel and the whole history of Israel in the coming of Jesus. And then he goes back to these stories and he finds there 
all of the arguments that he then makes explicit for us in his letters and epistles. And I say all that to say not so we can work from 2 Samuel 4 to the argument of Galatians 3 or Romans 13, but, but instead to say, understand how rich stories are. They function different, very differently than um, merely propositional arguments. They, they, they do things at multiple levels. So you have the story as it's presented to you. Then you have themes that kind of run the whole gamut of, of uh, the story of Scripture. You, you have um, types, images given to us in these Scriptures that, that find their fulfillment later on. You have um, things anti- that are to be anticipated And to pay attention to stories, to begin to draw those things out of it, requires a whole lot of work, a whole lot of diligence. Diligence that is often gloriously rewarded. Um, We're going to draw attention to just a theme that's developed, a a, a pattern that unfolds for us in these first four chapters of 1 Samuel um, that I think illuminates a lot. But if you're just reading the story at face value, you'd miss it. And therefore, you'd miss one of the things that the author here is trying to communicate to us. See the same sort of thing in First and Second Kings. As Solomon begins to rule, um, the author there never indicts Solomon straightforwardly. Instead, he, he gives us kind of uh, breadcrumbs along the way, telling us, um, kind of alluding to passages in Deuteronomy that, that warned Israel of kings um, that would depart from the Lord and ultimately chase after the gods um, of other nations. And, and instead of just telling us straightforwardly, like, and Solomon did this, and that was a sin, and Solomon did this, and that was a sin, and Solomon did this, and that was a sin. Instead, it says Solomon did this, and it phrases it in such a way to bring to memory Old Testament passages from the law. Kind of um, developing a pattern or a theme throughout First and Second Kings to illustrate that, that Solomon is on a trail that's going to lead to devastation for the people of Israel. He's doing the same thing, or a different author is doing the same thing here in First and Second Samuel. He's, he's dropping breadcrumbs for us. We saw it last week with the multiplication of David's wives and the listing of all of David's sons by different wives. And then a number of those names, most of those names, in fact, are going to come up later in the story of Second Samuel um, that will lead to uh, ultimately a, 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 a crack at the foundation of David's home and his rule. There's something else going on here in chapter 4 um, that I'll allude to here in a minute. But first, let's look at the story and what should we notice. Just a handful of things to notice, and then we'll draw some conclusions. One, um, these two men are cowards, and the text is trying to um, illustrate that for us. Uh, Ishbosheth is asleep. He's asleep in his home. They go in to get some wheat. Um, and instead of getting wheat, they stab him. Now, an interesting thing to draw, and here's, here's the pattern I want you to see, um, is that Ishbosheth dies in a similar fashion to Abner, who dies in a similar fashion to Saul. So you see a pattern. You have three men who've been killed, all through stabbings. The last two are killed through deception or evil. Um, and the thing I want to draw your attention to here, and we're going to spend some time talking about it here in a little bit, is in the first case, with Saul and Jonathan, what does David do? David immediately executes um, the one who claims to have killed Saul. 
has him killed. The second one, Joab murders Abner. David sings a nice sad song. He makes sure everyone knows he had nothing to do with this. He names Joab's deed as evil. He names Joab as evil. Um, But he doesn't execute judgment or vengeance on Joab. Third part of this story. Two men murder Ishbosheth. They come to David, bringing him the news, just like what happens with Saul. David's response is to have them killed pretty gruesomely. Not just cut off their heads, but cut off their feet. Kind of a double, like why the feet? But anyway, um, and so you have, um, and so you have with Saul, injustice, murder, a violation of God's law happens. David responds as the anointed king by executing vengeance. You have the third story. A murder, an injustice, a violation of God's law happens. David responds as the anointed king, executing justice, bringing vengeance upon those who committed the sin. Second story, you have a murder, you have an injustice, you have a violation of God's law occurs. What does David do? Not much. The, the rest of, uh, of David's reign will be haunted, will be twisted, um, will be met with problems because of Joab. This problem will get bigger, not smaller. Now, Joab's savvy. Um, he's at times going to give David some good counsel. But he's an ambitious man. He's an evil man. Um, David himself calls this man to Solomon a violent man. A man given to the violence in such a way that he loves violence. He en- enjoys violence. And that violence is going to cause problems in David's household. And it's a problem that David, as the anointed king, as the one set apart by God for the purpose of executing vengeance, establishing justice, punishing evildoers, David avoids. And then in the end, kicks it, punts it to his son Solomon. Um, And there's that pattern is established for us so that we can take note and say, hey, in just a handful of chapters, it seems like a similar thing has happened three times in a row. And two times, David did a great job. But one time, David didn't. What you're supposed to pay attention to, at least one thing we should pay attention to in the text is particularly the moment that David doesn't do what he did in the other two cases. And to see that this is going to be a problem for David. And so you have two murderers, two cowards, who stab Ishbosheth in his sleep. Um, and then they run to David. And then you have these very strange verses just stuck here in the middle. Actually, one verse, verse four. Um, this story about uh, Mephibosheth. I was confident I was going to say it very quickly and with skill, unlike Isaiah. Um, and then I fumbled. <laughs> and so uh, th- there's a number of things going on here. Um, one, he, it's, it's kind of putting a seed down uh, that we're going to see grow up later for us. Um, but primarily, it's, it's establishing, I, I think, an image of Saul's house. 
Um, here is a man who is unfit to be king. He's unfit to rule. He can't walk later um, as David and his men flee, um, as Absalom comes uh, to take over the throne. Um, Mephibosheth can't flee with him. Um, he can't even get out of town. Um, and so you have here an image of the unfitness, unfitness now of Saul's house to rule over Israel. Um, he is Saul's heir. Therefore, he is the picture of what Saul's house is like. And that happens twice now. Um, Two images of Saul's house and the state of it um, here in chapter 4. First, uh, when (laughs) there's so many Bushsheths, Ishbosheth gets word of Abner's death. The language here is that he uh, lost his grip, he he, he couldn't handle it. He, He was now filled with fear, anxiety. Um, and he's, uh, he, he's not a man who's fit to rule. He's not a man who's fit uh, to give direction. And then you have the other one who, uh, this other, <laughs> the other Mephibosheth, um, who is uh, now unfit to rule. And so you have, here is the state of Saul's house. Um, the author is establishing now, um, this, this house is done. Uh, the, 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 the sons who are left to Saul are either marked by anxiety and fear and terror and can't get a grip, or two, they're unfit to rule. They can't walk. They can't lead. And so that's, uh, we'll have more on Mephibosheth later um, as David shows kindness to Saul's house, even in its unfitness, as he shows kindness to Mephibosheth. Um, last thing I want to draw your attention to uh, is this Theological interpretation given in verse 8 by the two murderers. So they think we've killed David's enemy. We've killed the son of Saul, the one who was trying to kill David. And now we're going to bring the head to David and receive our reward. And in order to receive that reward, they paint it all um, in a pleasant theological picture, picture, at least pleasant for them. Listen to what they say. Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, remember? <clears throat> Who sought your life. He tried to kill you. The Lord, hear that? The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, this day on Saul and all his children. So these two guys sneak in, murder a man in his sleep. Cut off his head. Take the head, bring it to David. And then they give an explanation of the actions that they just took. And their explanation is, look what God has done. God. God has avenged you. God has executed vengeance on your enemies. The ones who are trying to kill you. And buried in that theological interpretation is the declaration, we were the hands of God in bringing judgment on your enemies. We were the means by which God has delivered to you today this great revenge. David doesn't buy it. And it's interesting how he responds with his own theological take on things immediately in his response, he says, as the Lord lives. And who is this Lord? The Lord who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. So, So, 
YouTube murderous, giving your little spin on who you are and the story that God is telling. But let me correct you. You are not the means by which God has delivered me, and I didn't need you to deliver me out of this adversity. God has again and again and again delivered me out of the hand of every, out of, the, out of the, every situation. God has brought me out from adversity. And then he tells him what he's going to do. I'm going to do the same thing I did for the guy who told me he killed Saul. Now, Two wicked men have behaved wickedly. They've doubled down on their wickedness by doing something wicked, murdering a man in his sleep, and claiming it was God who did this through them. God wanted them to do this. They were the means of delivering David. He says, so now that I've heard this word about you, you wicked men, you've killed a righteous man. A man in good standing, a man who didn't deserve to die this way. In his own house, while he was on his bed. So David just names it for what, he is, what it is. That they've kind of covered over what they've actually done. They use theological language to cover over what they've actually done. To say, look what the Lord has done. And David says, you behaved wickedly. You behaved sinfully. You behaved in an evil way. The Lord didn't do this. You did this. It's really important that you see what David does here. Because this happens all the time. Look what the Lord has done as I sin. Someone coming along needs to say, the Lord didn't do that. You behaved wickedly. You behaved in an evil way. You sinned against the Lord in doing this. It served your purposes. You thought it was serving mine. But the purpose that matters, the only purpose that matters, is the purpose of God. And God does not accomplish his purposes. God does not act in a way that violates his own will. So he has them killed, has his young men kill them, cut off their hands and their feet, and hang them beside the pool. So there's the story. What do we make of it? What do we do with it? So I want to go back to that last point for a little bit longer and tell you what I hear often from people. Living in sin, pursuing divorce, adultery, walking away from the church, sit down with them, ask, how's your walk with the Lord? What's going on with you and God? Exact quote that I've heard. I'm not going to give you a number, but I'll just say lots like more than 40 times in my life. I'm closer to God than I've ever been. Have you heard that? Walking in 
clear disobedience to all the things that God has said, that he said to us in love, that he's commanded to us in love. Disobeying what God has given us. Response, I'm closer to God than I've ever been. Do you remember the text we read for our confession of sin? Abide in God's love. How do you abide in God's love? Keep his commandments. So so you have a theological interpretation of the actions that are in front of us. I'm closer to God than I've ever been. In other words, the actions I'm doing are freeing me to pursue God. And that is in direct contradiction to what God says. It's like these two guys. We sneak in, we murder a dude, cut off his head. Look what God has done. We're closer to God than we've ever been. David's answer, no, (laughs) you're not. Let me show you. Cut off your hands, cut off your feet. And how many times do we take our sinful behaviors and we cover it over with a theological interpretation that gives us cover? We grow bitter or complaining. Is complaining a word? It's a word. Bitter or complaining. Maybe, men, it's at your work. Your boss has given you some things to do. Those things are dumb. Objectively dumb. You receive them. and You get a little bit complaining. A little bit bitter. Your explanation I have a foolish boss. He's dumb. And I'm just feeling the weight of his dumbness. But the Lord has called you to serve him as you serve the Lord. Wives, your husband. Well, let's roll back. You're at home all day with your little one. The little one is right at that age, right at that kind of like 11 month, 12 month old age. We all know it's the window of time when having the 11 month old in church for the last 11 months, you've been like, this is easy. Why do people complain about having their kids in church? It's just a joy. He just sits here, coos. At 11 months, the child begins to yelp very loudly and he begins to squirm and the child has learned that body movement. I, I, as a weightlifter, would associate it with power cleans where there's a bend and then a thrust, perfect angle to hit you square in the nose and you get angry. But he's at that age and your husband has gotten to go off somewhere. Who knows even where he is all day? Some office somewhere says it's work. But really, he's just there having a great time. And then he comes home and he has the gall to say, man, I'm tired after that day. 
Like, don't you know what I've been doing with this power cleaner all day? Not power cleaning, like power vacuums or anything, but power cleaning, like, wham, right there, over and over again. Um, You will just a cuddle, wham, and then out of the arms. Um, You lay the baby on the bed, and then wham, off the bed. Um, And so this, and, and that happens over and over again. And then it gets to be Saturday, and he has the goal Turn on college game day. What is wrong with this man? And your theological interpretation of your bad attitude, your theological interpretation of your bitterness is, look at this man you've given me, Lord. He's lazy. He doesn't appreciate me. He probably doesn't even know about the power cleaning. In other words, we take sinful behaviors and attitudes and words and actions and we throw them into a theological shaker. We shake and then we pull it out and when it comes out, what is it? It's something that it's not. It's something else entirely. It's something that's justifiable. It's maybe even something good. This is a marvelous little trick that Christians love to play. Have you played that trick? We redefine our sin. We redefine our gross sins, our our seemingly small sins, our passive-aggressive words or attitudes, our bitterness, our envy. And we redefine it theologically such that it comes off as righteous or good or justified. And we do that, and, and, and it happens all the time in our culture. It's become like, like gangbusters business in the culture that surrounds us. A culture that defines actual racist behaviors and policies. Prioritizing or deprioritizing people based on the color of their skin and then calls it anti-racism and justice. Same thing. Do you get it? It's, it's taking all of that. They don't call it theology, but it's, it's all theology. They throw it into the theological shaker. They do a little thing. And they pour it out. And now... The good guys are being racist. The good guys are pursuing justice. But that justice has been redefined such that it's actually injustice. They're just like these two guys. We just went and snuck into a guy's bedroom and stabbed him to death while he was sleeping. Behold what God has done. Look at justice. In fact, the language here is the language of vengeance or avenging is justice language. God has executed his justice through our sneaking into a guy's bedroom and stabbing him in the stomach while he's asleep and cutting off his head. I would commend to you, I would plead with you, don't do it. Oh, find in your life 
Davids. Davids who will look at your attitude, look at your words, look at your actions and say, no, actually, this is wicked. Actually, this is sin. Actually, this is unjust. Actually, with all this covering and all this stuff, you're just being bitter. You're just being envious. That will point at what's happening and judge it with the right judgment. That will judge it according to God's actual standards and not our creative redefining of those standards such that we can be the righteous ones even as we chase after sin. And I would commend to you, have this same attitude with yourself. Examine your actions. Examine your thoughts. Examine your words. Lent is a fantastic time to get good at this. Not for the purpose of morbid introspection or, or, or kind of this uh, constant parsing of motives, but actually looking at what's happening and evaluating it in light of the scriptures. We need that. We can often be deceived by the world, but here's the reality in the church and in a church like ours. We know that God is the evaluator of all things, that God's standard is the standard. And so what we do again and again and again is to creatively redefine the standards of God so that we can be the righteous ones, so that our actions are excusable, so that somebody else is at fault. We need a David who will look at what's happening and name it. That's not cruelty. That's not harshness. If, if the text from John 15 is true, how do we abide, rest in, grow in the love of God? It's by abiding in his commandments, by, staying, by, by, by keeping his commandments. That it is love of the highest order for someone to, to say to you, hey, I, I, I hear this story, but in the end, I, I think you're just being prideful. I think you think you were justified when you said that, but that, that was... It was a bitter word. It was an envious word. It was a damning word. This is the kindness of God. So, don't don't find creative ways to philosophically or theologically Redefine your attitudes or words or actions as anything other than what God says they are. And one freebie. <laughs> like, we all stand before God and give an account for what we've actually said and done. And nowhere in that accounting will God Name that sin for you and then go, yeah, but college game day. He, he kept watching college game day. Now, your husband 
will have to give an account for his failures of love and all of those things. But what you will have to give an account for, what you have to constantly give an account for, is what you say in response to his sin or his lovelessness or that difficult situation or those, that adversity. David leaves no room here to say, finally, the civil war is over. Hundreds, if not thousands of lives will be saved. And yeah, you did something bad to bring it to an end, but at least, at least all, of these, all of this good is going to come from it. Enormous good is going to come from it. Oh, he, he names it just ruthlessly. Here's what you did. Don't excuse sin through the sins of others, through the attitudes of others. Don't excuse sin. Name it, repent of it, and be free of it. Second thing, we have a rough modern evangelical relationship with the notion of vengeance. In our cultural moment, particularly among evangelical Christians, I think there's enormous confusion over vengeance and wrath. It's not a popular topic. Um, Those who will acknowledge that wrath is somehow necessary, um, treat it in the Bible and treat it in real life and treat it historically as maybe a necessary evil. Yeah, at the end, unfortunately, God is going to pour out his wrath. Um, But don't see vengeance. Don't see um, the, the vengeance of God as a good thing. I mean, how many movies have come out where, where um, the protagonist, in fact, there's basically two kinds of movies I've seen a lot that kind of play on this theme, um, uh, where the protagonist, he's, he's upset, he's angry, something bad happened, and he's going to seek vengeance, and then at the last moment, he doesn't execute vengeance. He's rescued from destroying himself by seeking vengeance. On the other hand, you've had a number of movies that have come out that have just been kind of Vengeance fests, like here's an entire two hours dedicated to the great emotional satisfaction of seeing some father go execute vengeance on some gang somewhere who are bad guys. Um, And so you have kind of an unmeasured, kind of out in the middle of nowhere vengeance that just pursues it all the way to the end. And then two, um, the good story, the, the good ending to the story is vengeance. Um, we, we stop short of vengeance because vengeance is presumed to be evil. We tend to view vengeance as an evil thing, a thing that no righteous being could pursue. But this isn't the way the Bible speaks anywhere. Romans 12, 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. It doesn't say, Never avenge yourselves because vengeance is bad. So don't do it. It says, beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God. (laughs) Don't avenge yourselves. That would be a small thing. Leave it to God and his wrath. You have an image in Revelation 6, under the altar, before the throne of God. Saints, martyrs, praying to God. You think vengeance is bad. Here's the place where they're under the altar in the presence of God, pleading with God, oh, don't execute your vengeance. Don't mind us. We're here. Everything's fine. That's not 
what they pray. Instead, they pray, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood and pour out your wrath? So so in the Bible, vengeance isn't treated as an evil thing. It's not even treated as a necessary evil thing, an unfortunate but necessary thing. It is a thing to be prayed for. It is a thing to be celebrated. It is a thing to rejoice in. Like the whole story of Revelation is a story of God pouring out his vengeance on those who have attacked the saints. And the result at the end of Revelation is singing. So the problem with what these two men did was not that they were executing vengeance. Vengeance in and of itself is not a problem in the Bible. It is one of the fundamental means, one of the fundamental promised means by which God will establish his righteousness, his peace, his justice, his beauty in history over all the earth. The problem is these two men with authority not given to them, go and do what only a particular kind of office or particular kind of person is supposed to do. Romans 12 ends with the text we just, um, towards the end of Romans 12, this text comes, and then right at the beginning of Romans 13, well, let's flip over and read it. I want you to see it. Flip over to Romans 13. I don't hear pages turning. This makes me feel like you don't care. It says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, to the magistrate. The one who's been charged by God with a particular kind of authority to do a particular kind of job. What is that job? For there is no authority except from God, and those who exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God. And what does this servant do? What's his job? One of his fundamental jobs in Scripture. An avenger. Translated, that means one who does vengeance. An avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So the problem with these two guys is they go to execute God's vengeance and they have no authority to do so. David, the anointed king of Israel, executes at the end of this text rightfully or, his rightfully ordained authority to bear vengeance, to do vengeance on evildoers. So, for those of you who wince at the notion of vengeance, just categorically, like to consider texts like 
where God executes his vengeance on the earth against evildoers. If you wince at that categorically, let me tell you that the, the Bible contradicts you here. The Bible celebrates rightfully ordered vengeance executed by God and executed by those delegated by God with the authority to pour out vengeance. It is the means over and over again in Scripture by which God establishes goodness and beauty and righteousness and justice and truth. The promise of Scripture It's also a warning, but it is also a promise that we should put hope in. Is that God will one day finally and completely say, enough! And he will destroy the wicked in his vengeance forever. If you're here today and you're not a Christian... Christian message, the Christian gospel is glorious and beautiful and true. But it opens with a declaration that God will judge sin forever. And he is good and glorious and magnificent and holy to do so. And the offer of the gospel is you, you must not remain in your sin. But in Jesus Christ, forgiveness, full pardon is offered. Such that that vengeance might be turned away from you forever. But whatever you've heard about Christianity... It is not unicorns and roses all the way up and down. It is the declaration of a just and holy God who executes his vengeance on the earth in history and forever on all who will cling to their sins and will not flee to Jesus Christ who will not run to the love and the mercy and the grace of God. And his vengeance is not ugly. It is glorious and beautiful and we will sing of it forever. Last point. Oh, next to last one. Um, we, we hit upon this last week. I'll hit upon it one more time because it's, I think it's central to these four chapters in First Samuel, in Second Samuel. Um, David has trouble in his house. It's difficult trouble. It's family trouble. Like Joab's there. He has to see Joab. He, has, he relies upon Joab. Joab's in his family. It's just trouble. And, and so David, when it's outside of his house, he seems to handle things well. 
He does his job. He names the sin. He executes judgment. He, he, he moves and bears responsibility for the trouble, the problem, responsibility given to him by God, and he deals with it. And so here, all the more, you would expect David who behaves in a noble way, in a virtuous way, in a courageous way, um, when, dealing with, uh, when dealing with the murders of, uh, of, of Saul and Jonathan or dealing with the, the murder, murders of Ishbosheth, um, when dealing with something that's so close that he would handle it well. I mean, you would assume that unless you know anything about life. Right? Like, how easy is it to name a problem when it's over there? How difficult is it to deal with a problem that's right here? Like, when it's the person you sleep with every night. When it's the kids in your house. When it's the roommate who has massive problems you don't understand. Trouble when it's close seems harder to deal with. But but I want you to see this is David's failure. Over and over and over again. He's going to fail with Joab. He's going to fail with Absalom. He's going to fail with his sons. He's going to fail with his wives. Um, This is where David fails. David is brilliant. When it comes to running the state, when it comes to dealing with foreign enemies, when it comes to organizing and structuring the government, when it comes with all of these external realities, but deal with his household, he avoids it. And we have a tendency to do one of two things. And maybe men, I'm I'm speaking particularly to you, but I think it's applicable to everyone. Um, When we have trouble that's close, trouble that makes us nervous, our tendency is either to bull rush over it, to just destroy it, just do this, do this, stop doing this, get angry, get loud. You know, maybe you don't. Because I think far more common in our culture is when you see trouble close, trouble with a child, trouble with a spouse, trouble with a friend, the tendency is to avoid, to get quiet, to to create some distance. Just don't do very much about it. But rather than dealing with things in a principled way, in a measured way, in a way that accords with the words of God and the law of God, we either avoid or like destroy. Don't assume problems will get better on their own. If God's given you responsibility for that relationship, that marriage, that child, that, that, that job at work, that roommate, singles living with roommates, college students, I know what you're doing. You duck out so you don't have to talk to the roommate and you come back after they're asleep. Bear the responsibility that God's given you in whatever sphere God's placed you in. Confront problems. Ask questions. Have the conversation. Name the sin. Confess the sin. Don't assume problems will just go away and solve themselves. And supremely, what I pray that we would see 
week after week after week. Christ is the true and better David. He, he is the one, the Lord, who rescues us out of every adversity. This, this is the grounds from which um, we rightly interpret the ins and outs of our lives. Um, this is the means, not, not the creative kind of shaker deal, but Jesus Christ, the Lord, the one who has delivered us out of every adversity, including adversity of our own doing. Um, he's the one who delivers us. Um, therefore, because you're forgiven, because you're loved, because you're cleansed, when you're sinning, you, you don't have to hide it. You don't have to redefine it. You don't try to have to justify yourself. You can stand under the word of God, name your sin, confess your sin, repent of your sin, and live differently. You don't have to justify yourself. Christ has delivered you from all of your adversity. And last, vengeance belongs to the Lord. Not only in the life to come, but in this life as well. It's important to remember that all sin, cowardly murder in this case, but also that bitter attitude, that envy, that ill-spoken word, that lovelessness, these are all at their heart a usurping of the throne of God. It's a presumption that you know what is right and God doesn't. That you know what is just and righteous and God doesn't. And therefore the declaration that vengeance belongs to the Lord should strike fear in us. Fear that drives us again and again and again on our knees before the throne of God to confess our sins. The glory of the gospel is that Jesus Christ on the cross bore the vengeance of God that you and I deserve. Traitors, all of us. Because God has loved us, he sent his son to die on a cross as a propitiation Propitiation is a fancy theological word, not put into a shaker, <laughs> but a fancy theological word that simply means he died on the cross as the one bearing the vengeance and wrath of God. This is the good news. The vengeance that you and I deserve has been born. Let's pray and prepare for communion.